Good morning again. Good morning. I heard a lot of Mariners talk. Huh? Yeah. I mean, you guys. We had to win in two so we could come to church today because they were going to play at 11 o'clock today. So, you know, who's living right? Which one of you? Which one of you is it? It's definitely not me. <laughs> um, we had a fun time at our house yesterday, that's for sure. And also, I have a bit of a cold. This was not me screaming. Um, it's a non-COVID. You have to say that now, don't you? You have to say, it's a cold. I've tested negative, everyone, but I plan on kissing you all. No. <laughs> Just going to take a step back here. <laughs> uh, okay, we have some announcements, and I'm excited to share a couple of things with you. First of all, in a couple of weeks, we... Not a couple. Guys, Next Sunday, one day after the Mariners play at home, which is the 15th, a Saturday, and I might be going to the game, the calendar is marked for that. Um, okay, Sunday night, the 16th, we have Ignite, which is Brookview's family meeting, and it is a place for you to come and kind of hear some of the inside stuff that's going on around here. Um, we hear stories from other people and how God is moving in their lives, as well as getting updates on ministries and finances and all of that. So if you want to pull back the curtain and figure out what is this thing really about, it is a great place for you to come and, um, and check it out. And we're excited to be able to gather for dinner together as well at 5 o'clock prior to our 6 o'clock um, meeting time. And we are hoping that some of you might be able to help us with that dinner. We are going to have a taco bar I mean, who doesn't love tacos, right? We'll have corn and flour tortillas for those of you with gluten intolerances, and we'll be thoughtful about, you know, labels on things. But um, if you think that you might be able to bring something to help, would you text the word taco? I mean, how often do you get to text the word taco to your church, right? Um, to our Brookview number. And what that will do is it will automatically push a sign-up sheet for you, and there's a list of things that we're needing help with, and you can simply sign up for one or 20 of those items and bring those with you. Um, you'll just come a few minutes before our gathering at 5 o'clock um, in the evening, and we will greet you and show you exactly where to put your stuff in the downstairs. So thank you in advance for those of you that are willing to help with that. Also, as part of Ignite, and um, we have a movie and pajama party for the kids next door. And um, so, you know, grab their stuffies and their pillows and their blankies and their pajamas, and we'll give them some popcorn. They can eat dinner at 5 o'clock if you're all right with them, you know, put, getting dirt all over their pajamas. Um, and we're just excited to have the kids. So there is childcare available for that. They will eat dinner with you, and then you will leave them in the downstairs area, and we'll all head up here for our, um, our Ignite meeting. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks. So we gather items for Cedar Way and Vision House every month. And if you haven't heard about Vision House, they help with homelessness in our community and do an incredible job of wrapping around families and helping them to not only not be homeless anymore, but to head out of the goal in five years, head out of that place and not return to that life. And um, it is really cool what they do. And one way that we support them is we bring supplies to give to their resident store. And at the resident store, um, the um, people at, that are at Vision House get to come and shop for items. And it's like, um, it helps them with rent incentives. So if you pay your small portion of rent on time, if you attend the um, wraparound support classes, it's just a way of them getting a little bit of extra help when they need it, but also incentivizing some of the hard work that they're doing there. Um, and then as well, once a month, we um, give food out to families that are in need, have been identified at the schools as being under-resourced and um, food scarce, essentially. And so um, families come and pull up at Cedar Way and we fill their car with groceries and, um, and some food and paper and hygiene items. And so every month we have a drive for that. And if you're interested in helping us with that, we would 
So appreciate that. Our next one is not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. And again, if you text the word helping to that number, you will get an automatic digital sign-up sheet just like it is for Ignite. And there's a list of all sorts of things like toilet paper and shampoo and conditioner and bars of soap and um, food, actually food items as well. We bring them fresh produce at Cedar Way as well. So if you can help with that, that would be amazing and we would be so thankful. It's a really cool thing that we get to do to live love outside of these four walls. Um, we also have an online communication card and we would love for you to fill that out. Mark whatever boxes might pertain to you, anything that you might be interested in around here and we will connect with you um, during the week. We have something super special this morning, and um, I will just hand it off to Jason because I don't want to spoil it. You guys, feels quiet in this moment, but there was a buzz in here earlier. Did you feel that? The Holy Spirit is, is present. I got, I, you, you guys blew me up yesterday. I, we were watching it delayed, so I had to turn my phone off. And then when I turned it on, it was just like, oh, man, look at that. That is awesome. And one of them was Haley said, clearly, God is a Mariners fan. <laughs> so God bless you, Haley. Well, you guys, this morning, I have the privilege, and we haven't done this in quite some time, but I have the privilege of dedicating one of our little ones and um, this is a time where we thank God for the gift of a child um, because the Bible says that God intimately fashions every single human life, that he has great hopes and great dreams for every child. Um, David writes this in Psalm 139, 13 to 16. David writes to God, he says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so a dedication is just a time where we, we take a, a, a little bit of space to recognize that no human life is an accident that every child is precious. And we as parents and as community, we have, a, we have a huge responsibility in raising children because in the end, our kids, they don't really belong to us, they, they belong to God. We get to love them and we get to play with them and we get to enjoy them and we get to teach them and lead them and watch them grow. But in the end, they don't belong to us, they belong to God. And so we ask God to bless them and to, to use their life to impact our world. So this morning, we are going to dedicate, are you hyped, Zeke? We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna dedicate Ezekiel Herbig. And so, Johnny and Hannah, would you guys make your way up? Now, I have to tell you guys, this is pretty cool for me because I think I met Johnny, Big Daddy Johnny with the mustache and the child there. <laughs> I think I first met Johnny when he was about 10 or 11 years old, because I remember your little sister coming over to my house and playing in the yard when she was about eight. How much older are you than Kelly? Two years. So, yeah, so you were 10. And so I watched him grow up, go through our, our uh, you know, youth program, be, be the hellion that he was, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and still is, oh yeah, still is, and then go into the Navy where they whipped him into shape. And prepared him for marriage and a bride and all of that. And they met in the Navy. And, um, and I got to kind of participate in some of the wedding stuff with them. And it was really awesome. And now here we are uh, dedicating your child. Uh, so this is really cool. Uh, so Johnny and Hannah, will you commit to striving to help Zeke seek and serve Jesus throughout his life? And if so, answer we will. All right, to those of you that are in the Herbig's family and their friends that are here and just the broader church, will you commit to supporting Johnny and Hannah as they encourage Zeke to follow Jesus? And if so, answer, we will. We will. All right, I'm gonna pray. Would you stand and 
If you would like to, just reach out a hand in kind of agreement of what we're doing here. Zeke, what do you think? You want to hang with me or you want to just chill with Dad over there? You want to come over here? Bro. That's brave, bro. Yeah, come on. Here we go. All right, God, I just thank you for Zeke. What a blessing. And I pray, God, that you would fill him with your spirit. I pray that you would uh, just surround him throughout his life. Pray that you would fill him with all the things you know he's going to need, courage and strength and love and kindness and integrity, and you would help him to go into our world and do something very unique and very special to move this world forward in a way that pleases you. And I pray also for Johnny and Hannah, God, that you would fill them with wisdom and courage and strength and love and tenderness and all the things that they need to raise him and to teach him to follow you. Um, And I pray for those in the church and in their family that you would just use them to surround these guys uh, because parenting is it's not easy all the time. And so, God, would you help all of us to be a resource to them and to pour into this little guy? And, God, would you use them in very impactful ways all throughout his life? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dude, you were awesome. Let's just hang. You think so? Yeah. Okay, all right. He does get heavy. What did he weigh at birth? Nine pounds, two ounces. Nine pounds, two ounces. Good job, Mama. I know that it might feel like you're in a Catholic service. I don't mean anything bad, but it's like, let's stand up again. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. Now I'm rewinding it. It's, Oh boy. I look to you, not the left or the right. You are my vision, you are the price. I'm grounded in love, my faith is taking flight, and hope is still burning through the dead of the
God, thank you that um, you go before us and you're behind us and you're all around us and we just need to fix our eyes on you. And this morning we have come into your house to do just that and I pray that you would meet us here. In your name I pray, amen. Because no matter your ethnic or religious background or how old you are or where you come from on the socioeconomic spectrum, we all ask a core question. What, is it, what does it mean to be human? Or put another way, what, what is the meaning of life? Or what is the purpose of life? Like, is there any? And, and every religion and form of spirituality, in fact, every ism known to man, comes up with some kind of answer to this primal ancient question. Like, even atheism, right? That's an ism. It, it has an answer. And the answer in atheism is there, there is no meaning or purpose to life. Life is a, it's just a glorious cosmic accident. Therefore, it's what you make of it and no more. Now, often in the church, we come up with a very spiritual-sounding answer. Um, did any of you happen to grow up in a tradition using the Westminster Catechism? Yep, no, we are an unspiritual group. <laughs> and it did feel a little Catholic in here this morning. I have to say, I had to go in and out of that aisle a few times. Uh, okay, so I've digressed. Westminster Catechism, is, it's a series of questions about, you know, about God and the meaning of life and, and then re responses. So the very first question, it begins with, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to, does anyone know? Enjoy him forever. See, some of you do know the Westminster Catechism. You're way more holy than you thought. <laughs> and that's pretty good, right? I mean, like as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, how do I argue with that? You know, the chief end of man is, is to, in, in, to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I had to read that. Um, but here's the thing. Scripture actually opens with a very different kind of answer, one that's, that's a lot more down to earth, literally. So let's, let's look at page one of the Bible. This is Genesis one, and these are the first words describing the purpose of humanity. Starting with verse 26, chapter one, Genesis. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there it is on page one, staring you and me in the face all along. Why did God create human beings? We're told so that they may rule. Or it can be translated in order that they may rule. Now this, I think this language sounds like really odd to most of us. Like ruling. I mean, if your boss asked you what you're doing one day, It'd be really weird to say, you know, I'm just sitting at my computer ruling over my email, <laughs> right? Or if, like if you work as a barista at a coffee shop, I'm just ruling over this espresso machine and the milk and the sugar. Or if you enjoy yard work and landscaping around your house, you probably don't get done working for the day and go, man, I am ruling over my yard. <laughs> or if you're a parent, you don't think, I'm just, I'm just ruling over my kids. 
If you work in technology or analytics, you're not just like, yeah, I'm ruling over this software, like Excel or whatever. I mean, we, we, don't, we just don't really think of ourselves as, as ruling over stuff. I mean, the closest thing to this that, I, that is, feels somewhat normal to some of us is those of you that lived through the 80s, we would say stuff like, dude, you rule. <laughs> or I rule, or whatever. Other than that, it's not what rule language we use. And yet, according to Genesis, humans were created so that they may rule. Now, the word rule uh, in Hebrew is radah, and it can be translated to rule over or to reign over or have dominion over. And it is the language of royalty. It's the language of kings and queens. In the first story, the first humans, Adam and Eve, are created essentially as king and queen. And they are God's chosen agents to bring order out of chaos. And they are to do it in the way that God would do it. They are to do it with love and compassion and kindness and creativity. They are created in God's image to do God-like work. And this is what it means to be made in the image of God. It has to do with ruling. It includes other stuff too, but, but in this account, that's the primary thing. It's, it's, it's that God creates and he rules and then he hands the baton off. Not just to Adam and Eve, but he hands the baton off to all of humanity, right? He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the air, and it just goes on and on. This concept that all of humanity was made to rule, you guys, in the ancient world, we hear that, we go, yeah, we're all made in the image of God, right? It's like, duh. But in the ancient world, you guys, this was a subversive idea. It was treasonous because in the ancient cultures that surrounded the people of Israel, there was a well-known idiom, the image of God, but that phrase was always reserved for one person and one person alone. And who do you think that was? The king, right? The king. So in Egypt, Pharaoh was considered the image of Ra. He was quasi-divine. And so were the kings of Babylon and Assyria or whatever kingdom. So, so try to feel this. If the king is the chosen one made in God's image, that means that everybody else is not made in God's image. It means that everyone else is just basically slave labor to do the king's bidding. And so when you look at the creation story in Genesis set over against all the other ancient Near Eastern cultures and beliefs, the, Gen the Genesis story was and still is provocative and subversive because it shouts to us from page one, no, we are all made in the image of God. You guys, this story that we're reading today, it, it, it led to the democratizing of humanity. It's God saying, I, I want all of you to rule together, not just the king and not just the nobility and not just the elite of society and not just those educated at an Ivy League school and not just rich white men. I want all of you together as humanity, male and female, to rule over my raw, unseasoned, undeveloped world. Find a way to work together in doing something wonderful with the creation that I'm giving you to oversee. And I think that most of us, like, we feel this. We actually do, we feel this deep down in our DNA. Here's, I'll, I'll illustrate. Have you ever noticed how many Disney movies have the exact same storyline? Here's the plot line. The plot line is, there's a street orphan or a child from abject poverty or very humble means or whatever and that child does something courageous or heroic or selfless, something special, and becomes not just a hero, but becomes a prince or a princess. Like a nobody from nowhere becomes royalty. And it's, it's not just Disney when you think about it. Like we see this in, in many of our, the popular stories of our culture, from the Chronicles of Narnia to an epic like Lord of the Rings. In, in my childhood, there was a story of a young Jedi named Luke. <laughs> and you guys, I wanted to be Luke. In fact, on some days, I was Luke. <laughs> like some of you can do that way better than me. Can anybody do the Chewbacca? <laughs> and you don't know the Westminster Catechism, and you can't do Chewbacca. What <laughs> kind of people are you? 
But when you think, think about the story, right? Like think about Luke Skywalker and his sister Leia. Luke is a, 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 a poor dirt you know, dirt poor orphan stuck farming with his aunt and uncle and he lives on this insignificant planet in an insignificant place on the edge of the outer rim and he is nothing, he's nobody, but he does something heroic and it turns out he's actually royalty. And so is Leah. And they've just been tucked away, hiding in nothingness their whole lives, not realizing who they really are. Are you kidding me? That sells. <laughs> I mean, why does this storyline sell like no other? Cinderella, right? Aladdin. Why are human beings fascinated with these kinds of stories? Well, I would argue that it taps into this inescapable part of our humanity because every single one of us wants to be somebody. Every single one of us wants to matter. We want to be significant. We were born with the desire to live a life of meaning. And so where does, this, where does this drive come from? I don't think it comes from evolution. I mean, I don't think you can, even, you, you can even begin to explain it really from an evolutionary paradigm. So where does it come from? Well, Genesis tells us that God has just sort of placed this deep in our bones. That, that you have been made in the image of God, every single one of you, with, like if you're a follower of Jesus or not, either way, you have an inherent dignity and self-worth built into you. And you want to matter, and you want to do significant things, and so do I, because we are made in the image of God to rule. And it turns out that ruling can be really a deeply beautiful thing. One Hebrew scholar translates the word radah this way, just to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. And so it turns out that, that ruling is a lot like what you and I in our modern world call work. Now when I say work, some of you cringe. We're going to talk about that. And also, when I say work, I just want to say, don't just think about your job. Um, it is that, for sure, but it's much, much more than that. Work is so much broader than just whatever you happen to get paid for. In fact, a lot of work is unpaid. Like, if you're a parent, is that work? Yes. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And you guys, you don't get paid a dime for that. In fact, they charge you. <laughs> Turns out being a parent is actually a lot of work and it costs you a lot of money. I'm just starting to come back. We went out for dinner to celebrate the Mariners game last night and Kate and Keller bought dinner. You guys, we have arrived. <laughs> oh. Parent carefully. I <laughs> so, so a lot of work... Uh, it's unpaid. Like, if you volunteer here at Brookview, right, or if you help in your kid's classroom, or you volunteer in the community, and then there's just all this stuff of everyday life, right? There's, there's cooking meals, and there's cleaning up the house, and there's yard work, and grocery shopping, and there's helping a friend move, and there's driving somebody to the airport, and, and all of this stuff falls into the category of work. Okay, so over the next several weeks, as you hear me say the word work, please don't just think about your job. Yes, that is part of this, and it's front and center. But don't just think about Microsoft or Boeing or the classroom where you teach or whatever it is. Hey, think about all the different kinds of work that you do. And again, I want you to get that little phrase burned into your brain. What is ruling? What is work? It's, it's so much more than earning a paycheck. Here's what it is. It is actively partnering with God to move the world forward. So let's skip ahead to Genesis 2, because we really see this. Picking up in verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm about to continue reading, and I am going to read some details that would make some of you fall asleep. They would, you would gloss over them, and I, I'm about to read something that for most of us is like, who cares? Um, and we just sort of cruise past it. So I'm, I'm begging, please don't do that. Okay, try to visualize, do your best to try to visualize what this is describing. Okay, we're picking this back up in verse 10. This is the garden. 
says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Apparently there is gold that is not good. <laughs> also, there's aromatic resin and onyx. The name of the second river is the Gihon and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You guys, what in the world is going on with all of that random odd stuff? I mean, there's gold and there's onyx and there's resin and there's trees with fruit and there's rivers going in all kinds of directions and rivers that are winding through land and soil. And it can be like, it can be like, uh, yeah, okay. But why all the detail, right? Like, so what? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're doing like, like some of you do like a read through the Bible in a year plan and you get to this paragraph, can we be honest? It's really tempting to sort of glaze off and start thinking about what you're gonna have for dinner or whatever. Because it's like, who freaking cares? Like, why, why do I need to know about onyx and resin and gold? And there was a river here, and there was a river there, and yay, four, I guess, or whatever. And so what? But here's part of, 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 of what the writer of Genesis is saying. The garden is made up of raw materials, right? A tree, a forest, a rock, a river precious metals below the earth's crust, energy in the wind and moving water. These are all raw materials. And the human in this story is called to work it and take care of it. So the word translated to work can also be translated to cultivate it, to develop it, to draw out its potential. There's a pastor, scholar, author, Tim Keller. You guys know Tim Keller? Tim Keller uh, defines work this way. He says, it's rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. I love that. Like, that's inspiring. I want to be involved in that. That is the essence of, of work. Like, when a farmer takes soil and seed and water and, and sun and ranges, uh, rearranges it into a crop for people to eat and live off of and enjoy, or when a builder takes wood and stone and other materials and, and builds a neighborhood where people can live, or when a software engineer develops a new app or a new program for people to use, or when a massive team of people, that it takes all kinds of people, use uses raw materials and builds a 747 that transports people all over the world. Or when a mother takes a child, an unformed body and soul, and provides love and instruction and education and boundaries and rearranges it into a human being that can serve society, one day pay for their parents' dinner. <laughs> that is a deep work of cultivation. Right? Uh, author Tony Campolo once wrote about the, the mystery of parenting. And this, I, I read this many years ago. Um, at the time, he was a university professor. I don't know what he does these days. But his highly educated wife was a stay-at-home mom. And so he wrote about how sometimes they would go to social gatherings and she would feel devalued. And here's what he writes. He says, when I was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, there were gatherings from time to time to which faculty members brought their spouses. Inevitably, some woman lawyer would confront my wife with the question, and what is it you do, my dear? My wife, he says, who is one of the most brilliantly articulate individuals I know, had a great response, and here it is. I will try to read this with all that it's due. Here's what I do. I am socializing two homo sapiens in the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the teleologically prescribed utopia inherent in the eschaton. <laughs> when she followed with, and what is it you do? The other person's, oh, I'm, I'm a lawyer. It just wasn't that impressive. Right, again, there is a ton of very important work that doesn't get a, a paycheck. And there's a ton that does. 
But all of it is a form of cultivation. It's taking raw materials and rearranging them so that their potential is maximized for the flourishing of everyone. Like all over planet Earth, people are hard at work. They are rearranging raw materials into something more, into something better, into beauty and into art and functionality, into systems and architecture and technology and roads and bridges and school systems and curriculum and fire departments and police departments and, and governments. And, and, and what I want us to see today is that all of this is just a continuation. It's a furthering of what Adam and Eve started in the beginning because the garden was made to be dynamic, not static. Or said another way, the garden was a project, not a product. Meaning that the garden was designed to go somewhere. So like when you envision Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, please, please don't imagine them like laying around on lounge chairs by a pool drinking Mai Tais. I mean, yes, the, 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 uh, the garden was a kind of paradise. I mean, the word Eden, it just means delight. And Adam means human, and Eve means life. So human and life were placed by God in something called delight. But when you and I start imagining delight, most of us simply cannot help but envision some sort of tropical vacation. Right? A, a, a lounge chair and a pool and a very blended, wonderful cold drink with an umbrella in it. And also, please don't envision the garden as this fully formed, orderly space. Like, like God just sort of created something that looked like a public park, and it had benches and tables, and, and, and it had a path all the way through, and a nicely manicured uh, lawn and a play set, right? And it had all of that. And then along comes God, and he says to Adam and Eve, like, all right, there it is in all of its glory, now, here's a, here's, a, here's a mower and a weed whacker and some maintenance tools, and so don't mess up this amazing space that I've created, right? Your job is just to make sure that, that this masterpiece that I've designed stays all trimmed up. I, I've made this amazing place, and so keep it tidy, will you? That's not really the picture that we have in Genesis. Instead of an orderly, manicured space with Adam's primary job being maintenance, Try to, try to imagine this. Imagine a wild, vast wilderness teeming with life and beauty and potential, but no order, no infrastructure, no roads, no bridges, no city, no government, no society, no civilization. And God says to Adam and Eve together, now go make a world. That's the idea, and, and that's the picture at the end of the Bible. In the last two chapters of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, it's all about future. It's all about where everything is ultimately heading. And the vision of those two chapters is just dripping with allusions to the garden. The idea is that what was lost will one, will one day be restored. So let me give you an, an example. This is Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. And check out how beautifully it all ties into Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light or of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give, will give them light. Then listen to this. And they will reign. They will rule forever and ever. You guys notice, this is all garden language, right? The tree of life, the river, there will no longer be any curse. They will reign forever and ever. That's garden language. And the writer John is saying that the future is essentially just a return to the past. It's a return to the Garden of Eden. But notice, it's not exactly a garden anymore. The future is a garden-like city. 
which maybe seems a little bit odd because it seems like, well, if Jesus' agenda is just to fix everything that's gone awry in human history and, and in all of creation and in all of the universe, wouldn't the story just end exactly right back where it started? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that it would end with everyone in the Garden of Eden, like, naked and unashamed? But instead of just Adam and Eve, there'd be, like, billions of people? Some of you can't stand that kind of image. Others of you are like, wow. But that's not the ending of the story at all. Instead, the the ending is similar to the garden, but it's different. It's not a garden. It's a garden-like city. And in the city, it has culture And it has art, if you read chapter 21 of Revelation, and architecture, and food, and drink, and music, and fashion. And when you get to chapter 22, it has walls, and it has gates, and streets, and dwellings, and there's urban planning. Why is that? It's because the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was never designed to just stay a garden. The garden was always intended to become a garden-like city. That's what human and life and their offspring were created for. That is our purpose in life. This is a big part of what it means to be human. And a number of authors and scholars have been writing about this um, over the last couple of decades. I first came across this idea about 15 years ago, and you guys, it made so much sense to me. It just, like, I was like, the light bulb came on. I'm like, I get it. And it just excited me, to be honest with you. And then about five years ago, uh, Kate started attending a church in Portland when she was in college down there. And so she found a church that she liked and she started sending me links to sermons and she, would, she thought I would, I would like her pastor and I did a lot. And turns out he's also an author and he wrote a book called Garden City. And I read it this summer and you guys, I was like, oh dang, I have to teach on some of this stuff. And so I've sort of crafted this fall series based largely on ideas from that book um, written by Kate's old pastor, John Mark Comer. And, um, and by the way, uh, if some of you have been around long enough, you've heard me quote him before. And apparently, like usually when I quote him, what I'll say is, Kate turned me on to John Mark Comer. But just recently, my family told me that makes them feel uncomfy and giggly in church. <laughs> And I have been told to never say that again. (laughs) So I will say about five years ago, Kate introduced me to the teachings of John Mark Comer. And I will also say that I am indebted to uh, him for much of what we're going to cover, at least some of the bigger framework ideas. Um, But the main idea of this entire series is that, you guys, you have been created by God to partner with him to move the world forward in many ways. And some of you, that, some, some of that will be what you do for a job, but a lot of it will be stuff that you don't get paid for. And here's what excites me about walking through this with you. As I've reflected on this stuff, I've just felt like it has changed how I see myself, how I see God, and how I see the world. Um, and it means that, that my life actually has more meaning than I was, than I was giving credit for. It means that God is deeply concerned with and involved in what I'm doing all over. Now, like not just as a pastor, but as a parent and as a coach and taking care of my yard, like everything. Anything that I'm doing to move the world forward, to create beauty or order or culture or art. And some of you are like, you create art? No, I don't. But it sounded cool. It sounded cool to just throw it right in there. Some of you guys do create art, and I just want you to know that is stinking awesome and God is into it. But this is what I'm hoping you will feel as we go, that you are already, you already move in the world in ways that are big that you don't even recognize. You are already doing all kinds of things that deeply matter to God because spiritual life is so much more than just prayer and reading the Bible and going to church. Now, today is just sort of like an intro into all of this, and there's, we're going to unpack this a lot more. But today, just let me give you two key thoughts around all of this. The first one is this, work is a blessing, not a curse. Now, that is not how most people in our culture think of it, right? I mean, the American dream, which started out as this brilliant idea that everybody should have a shot at a happy life, 
has devolved over the years into a self-absorbed desire to make as much money as possible in as little time as possible with as little effort as possible. And so we, we get off work, right? And, and, and we, get, we all, we all go, go off to work. And, and the hope is to, that we can go, go to work long enough to be able to go do something else. I mean, we all go off to work and, and then the hope is this sucks. So hopefully with a few hours I have left in my week, I can do something awesome. You guys, is it me? Or is that a miserable way to live? I, I, I mean, think about the, the way work feels for a lot of people. Okay? On Wednesday, we get to what? Hump day. You don't want to say that in church, do you? Hump day. <laughs> and I just want to confess to you as a child that made me giggle. Um, but I came to find out it just means it's the hump of the week, and we get over the hump and get, we get on the other side of it, right? Okay. So, and, and, then, uh, and then we get to the end of the thing, and it's TGIF. Thank God it's Friday so that we can stop working and go do real life. We can go do all the stuff that we couldn't get to because uh, we had to work. So what's the alternative to that? Well, we're going to unpack that. But I remember hearing when I was young, I remember hearing, like when I was in high school and college, wise people said, find a way to make a living doing something you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And there's definitely something to that. To a point. All right? I love what I do, but there's days when I don't like you guys at all. (laughs) I love what I do, though. But here's the thing, like, even with the best jobs, there is stuff that sucks, and we should expect this. I mean, in, in Genesis, we're told that work is cursed. And so Adam and Eve, they sin, and we're given this gut-wrenching pronouncement right away at the beginning of the Bible. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And the story goes on. Something is now off with humans' relationship to the ground. What was once life-giving and joy-filled has become painful toil. Thorns and thistles are symbolic for all of the frustration and the angst that now plague every human endeavor. Like even the best jobs or the best kinds of work have frustration. Even some of you who, who would say you're in your dream job, you still deal with junk, right? It's still marked by office politics and stress and the, the nonstop nature of the digital age and getting emails that you're supposed to respond to over the weekend, right? Even the best jobs have moments where it's just like, oh, somebody get me an ibuprofen, Right, and, and then there's, there's workplace gossip and, they, and there's people that are really difficult to work with. Even the best jobs have all kinds of junk. So let's be real about that. But according to scripture, work itself is actually a blessing. In fact, if you think back to Genesis 1, this is the first blessing in all the Bible. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the world. Work, you guys, work was a part of life in Eden before the fall. Work is a blessing, but it has gone wrong. And if you know the story of Genesis, it's kind of similar to the curse of childbearing, because right after the curse about work, there's a curse about childbearing. And and now we don't say that, that, you know, children are the curse, I mean, maybe in a dark moment, (laughs) on a tough day, (laughs) right? But children are a blessing, yes? Yet because of sin, childbearing is now painful, and parenting is hard. It's difficult, and it saps your energy, and it can be super frustrating at times. But it is still a good thing. The same is true with work. It's a blessing. And that leads me to the second and kind of final idea. And that is that there is no sacred secular divide we tend to divide everything in the world into two categories right there's the sacred and there's the secular and and this thinking goes all the way back to ancient greek philosophers and it's been around so long that it actually predates jesus but basically the idea is this and this is a gross oversimplification but here's the basic idea there is a sacred or spiritual world and then there's a secular or physical world 
The, the sacred, the spiritual world, it matters to God and the grand scheme of heaven and hell and eternity, but the secular world really doesn't. Here's the problem. By this definition, most of life is secular, right? Meaning by default, most of life doesn't matter to God. Most of life is not spent in prayer or Bible study or at church or in worship. As beautiful as all of that kind of stuff is, most of life is spent sleeping and working and grocery shopping and walking your dog and picking up after your dog and brushing your teeth and cleaning the house and paying bills and, uh, or working out or eating a burrito and then feeling bloated. <laughs> but less so if you just worked out. Like, this is the stuff of everyday life. And the damage of the sacred-secular divide is that it has reduced most of life to being completely insignificant to God. So if you hear nothing else today, hear this. All of life matters to God. And, and that's the catastrophic problem with the sacred-secular divide. It breaks up life into a thousand tiny compartments. So you, you have your God box, and it's over here. And then you have your work box, and then you have your money box, and then you have your sexuality box, and then you have your friendship box, and your vacation box. And God just becomes another compartment in your already overcrowded, over-busy life. And work, like our job, if we're fortunate to have one, it becomes this huge box that is then disconnected from God altogether. So, so, so many people don't see the connection between following Jesus and engineering, or following Jesus and doing design work, or project management, or nursing, or medical care, or, or firefighting, or parenting, or whatever. For so many, following Jesus has very little bearing on everyday life the stuff that we give the lion's share of our attention and energy and time to, which for many of us is our job, 40-plus hours a week for a lot of us. So I want to say, um, if that's you and you're like, yeah, that's, that's kind of me, please don't feel judgment from me because the blame for that, it doesn't fall on you. It falls on guys like me. It falls on pastors and church leaders and Bible teachers because so often guys like me spend the majority of our time teaching people how to spend the minority of their lives. We teach you how to do all of this beautiful, meaningful God stuff, Jesus stuff, which is fantastic and it is essential. But then not necessarily how to be an accountant and a follower of Jesus, or how to be a banker and a follower of Jesus, or how to be a teacher and a follower of Jesus, or how to be a software engineer and a follower of Jesus, Jesus or a police officer, or a barista, or a parent, and a follower of Jesus. This is the real stuff of real life. It's the majority of life. And here's the thing. That stuff is spiritual too. There is no divide. In fact, I just, I want to point this out. In the Hebrew language, they had no word for spiritual. So, like, if you, if you uh, don't do it right now, but if you were to go home after this and you go to, like, BibleGateway.com or .org or whatever it is, and you locate the search engine for the Bible and you search the word spiritual, you might be shocked. Because if you set the parameters to the Old Testament, like from Genesis to Malachi, the, the Bible of Jesus' day, if you search the word spiritual, you know how many results you'll get? Zero. It's not there. There's not even a word in the Hebrew language for that idea, for spiritual. When you get to the New Testament, it is there, but really it's only ever used by Paul. It's not used by Jesus, and Paul means it in a very different way from the way most people talk about spirituality today. So, so think about Think about, think about it this way. If you were to be able to be transported and go back and, and walk alongside of Jesus in his day, and you were able to have a conversation with him, so you walk up to Jesus and this is your moment, and you can ask him anything. And so you're like, huh. Hey, Jesus. How's your spiritual life? 
Here's what I think. Now, I'm imagining this. I think he would look back at you really confused. Like, spiritual life? Um, I'm not familiar with that word. What exactly do you mean? And he's like, oh, you mean that? Oh, weird. Okay, so you basically mean how, you know, how's my life? Because by your definition, all of my life is spiritual. Now, please hear me. That, that does not mean by any means that all of life is good. There is evil. And it doesn't mean that everything matters to an equal degree. Right? Can we all agree? Some stuff matters a whole lot more than other stuff. What I'm saying, though, is that all of life matters to God. For Jesus and the writers of Scripture, the point of life isn't to escape planet Earth and go somewhere else called heaven, even though that has become the dominant goal of much of American Christianity. For Jesus and the authors of the New and Old Testament Scriptures, the main goal is to join in on the garden project here on Earth, like to get dirt under our fingernails as we work for a garden-like world. It's about spirituality coming, crashing and bursting into all of life. It's about waking up to the reality that we live in a God-saturated world, that he is all around you closer than the air you breathe, and he is inviting you to partner with him to move things forward. And you guys, when I look around our, our little church, our little community that's apprenticing to Jesus, I see you guys I see, I see you guys doing this in beautiful and meaningful ways everywhere. Like, I, I think of my friend Nathan, who loves coaching youth sports. Right now, it's soccer. It's been softball. Nathan, in fact, missed the Mariners game yesterday to coach little girls soccer. <laughs> and if you ever talk to Nathan, he doesn't say much. But if you want to get him going... Ask him about his coaching right now. He is moving the world forward, and he loves it, and God cares very much about it. I think about my friend Monette. She loves gardening and landscaping, and she got a job at Ace right down the street. You need a hookup, you see Monette. Because <laughs> she started off just working there, and now, of course, she's running the garden department which makes sense because she and her husband, Tim, they have beautiful landscaping. If you ever drive by their house, you're just like, dang, that's unbelievable. So, and they spend hours and hours watering and, and cultivating and, and, and making a, a literal garden. And, and if you ask them about it, they would actually like to spend a lot more time on it. They feel like they're a little limited. They're like, oh, this is starting to fall apart. <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> So this spring, because they want to spend more time working on their garden, I said, well, let's pull you out of there. How about you start working on the church? <laughs> and so they said, okay. And so they put together a team, and that team has come and, and made this place beautiful. And that takes time, and that takes energy. But God is in it, and he cares. Not because it happens to be a church, just because he cares about that stuff. Now, sometimes I get done mowing and trimming my lawn at home, and certain days, like, it is extra green. You know, and it just looks, and I'm like, oh, dang. That is beautiful. It's just like, yes, I did. That's what? Okay. <laughs> but here's what I'm coming to see with that. Like, I've been doing that, and there's days where I'm like, oh, cool. But what I'm coming to see is that, yes, I love that, but God loves that too. Like, he loves that I love it. And he loves it, and he's in it, because it makes my neighborhood beautiful. It moves the world forward a little bit. He's into it. Um, I think of, of, of Big Brian, who loves to make sourdough bread. <laughs> and he has yeast. That is, is it in your fridge? Is that where you keep it? No, you can't keep it in your fridge. It'll die. Yeah, it's got to be on the counter. <laughs> but here's the thing. Brian feeds his yeast and takes care of it like, some of you take care of your pets. <laughs> and then he continually tweaks his recipe for sourdough to make it better. And so here's what I'm saying. If you're like really nice to him, he might someday share some with you. Uh, here's what you'll discover. Brian is moving the world forward. <laughs> and God is into it. 
and so am I. Um, I think of Kate teaching eighth grade math at a low-income middle school. I think about her coming home in tears, broken over students, trying to figure out ways for every single one of them to flourish. Just not being okay with any of them falling through the cracks. She got several kids in each class that, you guys, they don't even speak a a lick of English. And she's doing everything that she can to help every single kid succeed. And so she's partnering with kids, kids with other kids who who speak their language. And she's seating kids who get distracted next to kids who are on task and who understand what's going on, who can help them. And she's sitting them next to each other. This weekend, she spent hours and hours and freaking hours on seating charts for kids. Why? Because she wants every kid to flourish. And here's what I'll say. You know what? God cares deeply about that. I think about my friend Matt, who loves making music. And sometimes he plays it at church. And when he does that, we call it worship. (laughs) But mostly he makes uh, music with friends around campfires and in bars and places where they can gather together in community. He makes art and he makes community. And God cares about that. I think about my friend Eugene, who makes apps. I think that's what you do. (laughs) I honestly think what he does might be top secret, (laughs) and it is beyond my comprehension. Now, sometimes you'll notice him drumming here on Sundays, but most of his, seriously, most of his time is spent in the tech world. There are a few people that call him Eugenius for obvious reasons. Because he makes technology that moves the world forward. And you know what? God cares about that. Okay, last one. And you, I guess I could look around this room. I honestly, like, I could go on and on and on. And some of you are like, you're going to say me? I'm not. <laughs> Except one of you. And for this last one, it's uh, one of my absolute favorite people, um, Eloise. And here's what Eloise does, you guys. Eloise makes babies who make babies who make babies. (laughs) She has taken upon herself God's instruction to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. (laughs) So Eloise has three kids, and she has six grandkids and six great-grandkids. And um, I've had uh, the privilege of having Eloise in my online life group for over two years. And so usually when we get together, we do highs and lows, you know. And almost every week, her high is spending time with what she calls the greats. And she is pouring into them. And she's loving them. And she's building them. Can you guys imagine having Eloise for your grandma or your great-grandma? Oh my, what a gift to a kid growing up. It's unreal. Now, Eloise has done a lot of different work in her life, and she still does, but a major area of work for for her these days is great-grandma. And she is moving the world forward, and God is in it, and he is right there smiling, and he is right right alongside of her helping and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You guys, all over this room, people are doing amazing stuff that God cares deeply about. And so just let me wrap up with this. My invitation for you this week, the stuff that you do, do it with God. Invite him in. And then allow yourself to feel his pleasure over your work. Father in heaven, I thank you that that in this world we can all be people who matter, we can do stuff that matters, we can live lives of significance. And I thank you that you didn't just create perfection and then have us sit outside of it with no input into what it looks like and where it goes from here, but we have all kinds of creativity and innovative ideas and we, and we all bring different talents and different experiences and different strengths to the thing and we combine it with other people and we can create a culture and a world that is, that is a garden-like city. And, and we are. 
people in this room, all, 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 all throughout this room, are doing that very thing. And so, God, would you help us to see that as something that is deeply spiritual, and would you help us to do it with you, in your presence, with your blessing, and just to feel your pleasure over us. God, would you help us to do that more and more? In Jesus' name, amen.